Hello everyone, thank you for sticking by me. I have been away for about a year and now I'm back. During this year, I have moved apartment, changed my job title completely, though I'm still with the same company. And uh, well, life is looking good. I've uh, prepared myself by doing a buckload of uh, book reviews. Actually, I've become uh, more of a reviewer of late, doing a lot of um, advanced readers, readers' copies. And uh, it's been a hoot. To be uh, very, very frank, uh, there's going to be quite a lot of great books coming ahead. Some of them I'm going to talk about during this episode. Others I cannot talk about because the publishers don't want me to. So uh, those will be talked about in forthcoming episodes. I will be trying to do this more in a consequent format. So I will be publishing more often than I have, at least more than once a year. Hopefully at least six times a year. Hopefully, I uh, I think I'm uh, making that sound uh, reliable and believable if I'm if I'm saying it out loud. So I hope that to be the truth. Um, to begin with, I'll kick this review session off by talking about Max Porter's latest book, Lanny. Max Porter came onto the literary scene with a book named Grief is the Thing with Feathers. Now, Lanny is a book onto itself. It's a fictional novel that combines modern-day Britain with non-Western thinking. It's both an existential and experimental book in one. I hate using the term unputdownable, but I really couldn't stop reading this book. I even went to the doctors and didn't hear my name being called out until the doctor stood right in front of me and with his hands interrupted my reading. The start of the book threw me a bit. It's a bit like reading Alan Moore's Jerusalem, a very complex and dense book, I think 1600 pages roughly, and Peter Ackroyd's Hawksmoor. Now, Hawksmoor, uh, it is one of the books that David Bowie's son actually picked as the first, I think it was the first one, for the David Bowie book club. Um, Hawksmoor jumps back and forth in time and that combined with what Jerusalem is is actually saying a lot about the book. But Lanny is also just as accessible as Sally Rooney's masterpiece smash hit Normal People. The experimental bits in Lanny didn't put me off but actually made me instantly want to dig deeper into the book. And uh, the dialogue may seem lackadaisical but it is very engaging and beautiful. I'll read you a small sample. We trampled down the dog walk path towards Hatchet Wood, and it was ever so beautiful. The thick wall of green between the common and the wood bursting with life, clematis clambering through and over it, a properly paintable riot, the yarrow glowing a bit, the blackthorn and maple all hugged up together, foxgloves leaning out like thick beckoning arms, and I was still wiping tears of laughter from my eyes and considering how surprised it was, me, an old man, tail end of a good career but mainly lonely life, finding such a good friend in this little kid. I, could, I can't really find any drawbacks with the book. It's a wondrous example of what experimental art can do, and I really want to reread the book at once. Uh, if you read the notes to this podcast, I've included a link which you can click to hear some reading aloud from the book from this year's Hay Festival, both by the author and by others. Next up is a track by Park Jiha. 
She is a classically trained Korean artist whose latest album, Philos, is really, really good. She is trained in classical Korean instrumentation, has been a key figure in firmly pushing towards the lineage of traditional Korean music. Uh, the latest album is starkly featuring an instrument called the Janggeum, which is a hammered dulcimer that produces flutters of high-pitched melody while also resonating like a rumbling drone on its bass strings. Um, the track Thunder Shower will be played now, and it's inspired by a sudden summer downpour, so it suits pretty well with the Swedish summer. You go. <laughs> Thank you. 
Lisa Taddeo has written and very recently published a book called Three Women. This book is marvellous and is about the lives of three women. Uh, the author has spent thousands of hours with these women over a period of eight years. And despite this, the book is airy and not just a dense mass of words, which could be the case if it had been gone badly. But it's not like that. It takes a special author to exalt itself to virtue and zen-e bypass the self. Still, it'd be brutal to suggest that a human author can separate itself completely from its subjects and even to a greater extent from injecting itself into a book about others. But the rhythm of the book is what pulled me into it. Um, you know, the feeling about, you know, when you're lulled into security by a talented event veteran writer, that is what happened to me with this book. And here's a quote from it. While I never had occasion to wonder about my father's desire, something in the force of it, in the force of all male desire, captivated me. Men did not merely want, men needed. The man who followed my mother to and from work every day needed to do so. Precedents forfeit glory for blowjobs. Everything a man takes a lifetime to build, he may gamble for a moment. I've never entirely subscribed to the theory that powerful men can have such outsized egos that they cannot suppose they will ever be caught. Rather, I think that the desire is so strong in the instant that everything else, family, home, career, melts down into a little liquid cooler and thinner than semen, into nothing. I think there's a succinct curtness at the base of the book. Even the quotes are quite sparse. It creates a kind of ballet feeling where the dancers move around much by the use of small and quick steps, and the rhythm is nearly poetic. Here's another example. Because most people will agree, when a lover shuts down, refuses to meet you, doesn't want his oral B back, doesn't need his trail shoes, doesn't need return an email, goes out to buy another pair of trail shoes, for example, because that's better than dealing with your mousetrap pain, it's as though someone is freezing your organs, it's so cold you can't breathe. Most people can probably relate quite well to this book. Much time, patience and, I guess, revision and editing has gone into this book to make it readable and interesting. And it holds out very well throughout, and it's often enthralling, mainly because of how Tadio has mixed the everyday, the mundane and the extraordinary into one, as life is, thus formulating the sort of texts that both Marcel Proust and the modern-day author Maria Stepanova mastered. Another quote. For the briefest of moments, you want to reach across with your small hands that he loved. Does he still love them now? Where does the love of hands go when it dies? And hold his face in them and say, Oh fuck, I'm sorry for betraying you. I was terrifically hurt and angry, and you stole several years from my life. It wasn't regular what you did, and now here I am. Look at me, I put this war paint on, but underneath I'm scarred and scared and horny and tired and love you. I've gained 30 pounds. I've been kicked out of school a few times. My father's just killed himself. I take all these medications. Look in my bag, there's a shitload of them. I'm a girl with the pills of an old woman. I should be dating boys with weed breath, but instead I fully personified my victim costume. I'm hanging by a fawn hanger at Park Party City. You never wrote back. It's quite a visceral book. 
keenly attuned to its subjects. The women aren't stereotypically written in any sense. I mean, sure, one might be critical of some of their at-time leans towards, say, the scorned woman, but that's not stereotypical. It happens, a lot, and that's it, really. Tadio has done away with the atypical and simply opted, it seems, for portraying women as women. The stories are often sensual with women, uh, humans in a modern age, although as always trapped in our past, unable to move away from headlights that are rushing towards us, Bambi in traffic. And it is thrilling. Tadio's style is, for human, is made for humanizing sexuality, as opposed to the tribe that drips off Sex and the City, Fifty Shades of Grey et al, which plagues much of the current literature. This book does away with that and is lifted beyond, thank God. Um, the book did seem a bit dull for a very short period of time, but then quickly, quickly picked up again, and that's the harshest critique I can actually give it. And the best thing about the book is that it revives a sense of honesty without shock, which hopefully will revitalize any lovelorn reader who has missed terse literature that brings to life that which many other authors have abused. Every paragraph can be separated from its chapter and still be of use, and it takes, yet again, a special author to manage that. Next up is a music track by Popol Vuh, uh, an artist that is completely and incredibly amazing. Uh, sadly, the artist died uh, far too young. Still, he managed to create a bunch of albums that have all grown into the pantheon of what is called Kosmische Music. Now, Kosmische Music is actually a genre of music that is also called Krautrock. Um, it's a German type, uh, German based music, I should say, uh, mainly popularized by bands like Can and Faust and Neu and imitated and copied by a bunch of Western bands throughout the world, really. Uh, now, what you're going to be hearing is a short, very kind of Christian and uh, easily structured song. It's just a segment from what is basically a soundtrack. So here you go, Popolvu. Thank you. 
The next book I'm going to be talking about is a magnificent book that will be published later this autumn. It's called America's Most Alarming Writer, Essays on the Life and Work of Charles Bowden, edited by Bill Broyles and Bruce J. Dingies. Now, I didn't know much about Charles Bowden before reading this one. I'd read one book actually about Juarez, a uh, city in Mexico which I, I think still adds up the highest number of homicides per year and has been that way for a lot of years. Um, this book is a collection of 50 essays on the life, work and times of and with Charles Bowden. And it paints a broad picture of him as hardworking, always himself, postulating, teaching, drinking and self-avoiding uh, as he could possibly be. He is... Um, when one takes a swift eye at this bunch of essays, he might look like a bit of Hunter S. Thompson, but he is not like that. Personally, I feel that Hunter S. Thompson is vastly overrated, um, not towards the end of his life, but overall, I think he was a lot of shock and awe, um, and Charles Bowden was very, very much hard work. Here's a little piece from the book which clarifies this. Writing consumed Bowden's life. When a girlfriend complained that he wrote all the time, Chuck tried to explain that he was possessed by a writing demon. But she was having none of it. That's unfair to me, she said, only to have Chuck reply, how do you think that makes me feel? My life is never my own. So the thought of how he worked is enough to make people like him, I think. Here's another quote. Bowden wrote for newspapers and national magazines for the simple reason that they paid enough money up front so he could afford to write the books that mattered to him. He explained the process this way. National Geographic called and asked me to do a story. I said, I'm interested. They said, we pay $4 a word. Now I'm interested. They fly me to somewhere for five days. I write for three days more and they pay me $16,000. Then I can write my books. Also another quote. For all the darkness Bowden exposed, he identified fear as humanity's greatest threat and remained an optimist at the end. Several years before his sudden death in Las Cruces, New Mexico, on August 30th, 2014, he explained to an interview how, as a kid, I used to play pickup games of baseball every day after school in Chicago. Chuck reminded him that you can't step up to the plate without thinking you're going to get a hit. Otherwise, why the hell would you pick up the goddamn bat? Of course I'm an optimist. I want to preserve human joy. I'm not a pessimist. I'm critical because I'm in a ship that's bringing leaks and nobody wants to admit it. I want to fix the boat before we sink. It's actually really beautiful, this collection. There's a lot of things that are really curt and wondrous and everything about it. It's so... It's, it's something fresh and it's something courteous and it kind of goes into every of how journalism really should be when a person is doing it really, really well. Um, one of the essay writers is Jim Harrison and he wrote this. Read him at your risk. You have nothing to lose but your worthless convictions about how things are. And it's a very timely collection of a true writer who had to write. It's a hagiography, sure, but the love and adoration for Bowden shine through, even from the eyes, hands, and mouth of others.
Right, next track is music. It's uh, an artist called Lingua Ignota, who I recently discovered. Um, this artist is quite the special one. When I first heard her, I thought of um, Diamanda Galas and I thought of EMA, and I also thought of, um, well, some opera and perhaps some Tom Waits and the cave and shit, and or and a little uh, Einstein and about as well, but uh, it's unfair to say all those things. I mean, she is very much the constructed artist. I think she knows exactly what she's doing about with her entire career. Uh, it Her music is full of screams, alien tongues uh, and it's it's uh, it's very special i mean lingua ignota means unknown latin uh, oh sorry unknown language really uh, it's a, it's a she sings in a weird alien tongue to to paraphrase uh, the quietus which have uh, written a, a great article about her she has uh, also uh, i'm going to be leaving a, a note in the in the podcast notes um, that will link to her explanations on whatever track on the album means. She won't uh, go out in detail, but there's a lot anyway. She goes into stuff like Kindergarten from from Bingen to uh, Henry Purcell to uh, well Wagner and stuff like that. It's it's very um, very well constructed, I'd say. So uh, without further ado, it's a long track by Lingua Ignota. Cheers.
series book that is about to be published in the autumn is uh, Renia's Diary and the subtitle is A Holocaust Journal. It's written by Renia Spiegel, uh, edited slightly by her sister Elizabeth Bellack with some uh, information additional. Uh, it is the edited version of Renia's diary that spanned nearly 700 pages and four years, from 1939 to 1942. Um, it's so essential to read. Uh, Sergei Yaro wrote brilliantly about morality in the siege of Leningrad during World War II. He read a lot of previously redacted diaries that belonged to people who were part of the siege. Those diaries told a clear tale of how things changed gradually, how it was that once considered behaviors to be extreme were normalized, from making potato skin soup to pilfering corpses for food stamps. Equally, Victor Klemperer's essential diaries from the Second World War told a most chilling tale where Jews were violently targeted, people that weren't the Teutonic ideal were persecuted, and entire populations were raised off the face of the earth, but not without testimony. Rienia's sister, Ariana Spiegel, who is currently named Elisabeth Leschiska Belak, writes the following. Most importantly, diaries offer us something that memoirs do not, an emotional immediacy. And it is this immediacy that is so very compelling. I'm reminded of Helene Baer, the Israelite young Parisian woman who kept a diary from 1942 through, through the day she and her parents were rounded up in March of 1944. Fortuitously, she begins to write but a short time before the decree that all Jews must wear a yellow star. She confines to the diary her struggle with whether to wear it or not. Was wearing it an act of compliance with a hateful regime, or did it demonstrate a pride in one's Jewish identity? We read of her reactions to passerby's comments. Some express solidarity and others pity. She reflects on them, not from a distance of many years, but on the day she encountered them. She does not, because she cannot, contextualize this act as a first step in an array of far worse persecution to come. And the following is the first quote of Renia's diary. January 31st, 1939. Why did I decide to start my diary today? Did something important happen? Have I discovered that my friends are keeping diaries of their own? No, I just want a friend. I want somebody who I can talk to about my everyday's worries and joys. Somebody who will feel what I feel, believe what I say, and never reveal my secrets. No human could ever be that kind of friend, and that's why I've decided to look for a confidant in the form of a diary. Today, my dear diary, is the beginning of our deep friendship. Renia was 14 years old when she started her diary, a tumultuous time for any TJ, teenager for sure. She writes of everyday troubles, of boys she likes, of family, friends, her constant longing for her mother, and to begin with, this diary offers a reprieve from all things sensationalistic, which is exactly why it's extraordinary. The horrors of World War seep in over time. Another quote. February 13th, 1939. Can there be a worse day than Monday the 13th? Monday on its own is usually quite bad. Now we have the number 13 added to it. 
bad luck, it was definitely not a good day for me. September 10th, 1939. Oh God, my God, we've been on the road for three days now. Prezhemny was attacked. We had to flee. The three of us escaped. Me, Arianka and Grandpa. We left the burning, partially destroyed city in the middle of the night on foot, carrying our bags. Granny stayed behind. Lord, please protect her. We had heard on the road that Prezhemny was basically destroyed. One standout thing about Renia is her poetry. She writes poetry all throughout her diary about all types of things. It's apparent also to me how her poetry changes, both from her age and also from war. From war. And her words on her love interests radiates from the page. It's really, really interesting to read. Her true beloved, Zugu, shines through the pages, even when he's a bore and their love is mutual. It makes me remember the turmoil and torpor that youth entails. Zuga and Urania loved each other dearly, seemingly as she loved her mother. Urania's sister, Elizabeth, provides a loving epilogue to this book, which also details as much as we know happened to Urania, and also to Zugu. This diary stood the test of time, and will forever be at home over what happened to a young person who was murdered during the Holocaust. There is also the Renia Spiegel Foundation, which I hope that you will visit. Here's Konks on Pac's song Paris 5am from his new album Ways of Seeing, which is his third for label Planet Moo. He's still doing stuff that is lo-fi and hazy and summery delicious.
Suzanne McConnell has written and collated writings from Kurt Vonnegut, the famous writer. This book is called Pity the Reader, subtitled On Writing with Style. Vonnegut was not only a prolific writer and a highly respected human being, but also one who made rules and mostly broke them. Suzanne McConnell is one of Vonnegut's former students from his period of teaching at Iowa, Iowa Writers' Workshop. She and Vonnegut remained friends until his death. Until this book came along, only small fragments of Vonnegut's teaching, including his philosophies and other worlds of thought, were available, mainly as short stories which were fragmented throughout time and different publishers. Here, McConnell does not only collate the entire experience, that is his writing on writing, but also brings to life his oeuvre as a teacher and a human being. One of the main boons of this book is McConnell's exquisite, funny and daring way to comment on everything throughout the book. Her comments often provide valuable insight into Vonnegut's process for thinking, mashing, drafting and finalising his material. I think the book is 60% Vonnegut, 40% McConnell. From the book, a quote. You probably met Vonnegut also through reading his books, assigned in high school or college or read independently, depending on your age. If you read Slaughterhouse-Five, the most well-known, you know the experience that drove him to write that book, because he introduces it in the opening chapter. As a 20-year-old American of German ancestry in World War II, he was captured by the Germans and taken to Dresden, which was then firebombed by the British and Americans. He and his fellow prisoners, taken to an underground slaughterhouse, survived. Not many other people, animals or vegetation did. It's easy to see how Vonnegut's dry and black humour is either mixed with or matched that of McConnell's. I adore it and I can't count the number of times that I laughed out loud while reading this book. The book is littered with insight into how knowledgeable, scholarly and also transformable Vonnegut was. He seems to often have provided gleaming trinkets of truth that upended a lot of what was fashionable then at the time and still is today. Imagine switching the names Kerak and Hemingway for friends in a, well, Kardashian in the following paragraph. We've come to the point where we're more interested in looking at the scrolls of Kerouac than reading Kerouac. The same with Hemingway's home in Key West. Fetishism of famous writers, he suggested, occurs because it is such heavy lifting to actually read books. There's quite a lot of interesting bits here, both where Vonnegut, McConnell and other interesting people are thrown into the mix. A quote. Some reviewers dismissed Kurt Vonnegut's writing for being too simple. John Irving criticised Vonnegut's critics. They think, Irving wrote, that if the work is tortured and a ghastly effort to read, it must be serious, whereas if the work is lucid and sharp and the narrative flows like water, we should suspect the work of being simplistic and as light and as lacking in seriousness as fluff. This is simplistic criticism, of course. It is easy criticism too. Why is readable such a bad thing to be these days? Some people are gratified by the struggle to make sense of what they read. I am more often gratified by a writer who has accepted the enormous effort necessary to make writing clear. Vonnegut criticised lit critics too. They wrote, Rococo argle bargle, he once said. To me, that's probably one of the best insights in regards to reviewers that I've ever seen. 
It also seems that Vonnegut spent quite some thought and action on trying to get his students and anybody really to know that their writing, their actions, their thoughts were as valid as anyone else's. And there are su such bursts of beauty throughout the book. An example, I quote. Kurt advised John Irving, who was working on his first novel, that I was interested in a certain young woman's underwear, but to an excess of what my readers should be. Irving revised it accordingly, but not to the degree that I probably should have. But he also said that I wrote with such enthusiasm. He told me, never lose that enthusiasm. So many writers are unenthusiastic about their work. It's very interesting. McConnell also calls Vonnegut out on his sexism. He wasn't intentionally sexist or harmful, she writes, but learned from being called out back in the day, which is really cool. Vonnegut's playfulness shone through everything, even though he was able to stay on the ball with his acute sense of worth. I quote, Throughout his work, Vonnegut conjured and indicated words. Dr. Ed Brown coined a new word for Sylvia's disease, samaritrophia, which he said meant hysterical indifference to the troubles of those less fortunate than oneself. Vonnegut comes alive in this book, and in spite of being such an intense writer, just feel like reading more and more of his written words, and I think we all have to learn from his pathos, methods, and mainly the ways through which he always broke all rules. Our last quote. There is no shortage of wonderful writers. What we lack is a dependable mass of readers. Next up, a song by Lou Coward, who is a classically trained piano player and composer. He does music in the same vein as Niels Fromm and also John Hopkins. Enjoy.
Deirdre Bear is about to publish her autobiography and memoir. It's called Parisian Lives, Samuel Beckett, Simone de Beauvoir and Me, a memoir. Uh, thing is, I'd not heard about Deirdre Bear before reading this book. Uh, I'd not even read her biography on Wikipedia, so I just jumped straight in because it seemed extremely interesting to see the innards in the mind of a person who'd actually written a biography both about Simone de Beauvoir, one of my fave existentialists, and Samuel Beckett, to quote from the book. So you are the one who is going to reveal me for the charlatan that I am. It was the first thing Samuel Beckett ever said to me on that bitter cold day, November 17th, 1971, as we sat in the minuscule lobby of the Hotel du Danube on the Rue Jacob. The start of the book is catchy without trying to be too engaging. It's clear that the writer is both experienced and knows rhythm very well. If writing a book is similar to pacing oneself for running a marathon well, this one holds up almost throughout, almost. Somewhere between meeting Samuel Beckett and Simone de Beauvoir, there is a lull. It is slight and on the whole can be forgotten. And this is my only complaint about the book. And mind you, it's uh, an uncorrected advanced copy of the book. Au contraire, Bear writes of her own family in a commendable way, never delving into the sappy or, or drab. Possessing the same kind of verve, she describes her own problems with deciding to become a biographer without knowing how to become one. She even asked Beckett how to, in a roundabout way. I quote. All this went through my mind in a matter of seconds as I dropped my head into my hands and said, Oh dear, I don't know if I'm cut out for this biography business. His demeanour changed immediately, as did his tone of voice. Well then, he replied, why don't we talk about it? Reading about Bear's conquests with Beckett, it's easy to want to read her book about him. What makes it even more fascinating is how Beckett did not let her behind the scenes of his machinations. A quote. Beckett was famous for never interpreting, analysing or explaining anything about his writings, especially the plays. Although he would discuss modes of interpretation, McGarren said, Beckett always fell back on the same final comment when questions got too close to the one he hated most. What did you mean when you wrote X? He brought such discussions to a quick end with, I would feel superior to my own work if I tried to explain it. It's clear to the reader, without Baird trying to blow her own trumpet, that the author has jumped through quite a few hoops to have a Beckett biography published. It's even impressive that she contacted Richard Ellman, who had his own Beckett biography published before Baird did hers. I quote, Richard Ellman then at Yale told me he would never grant me an interview because if he had anything to say about Beckett, he would write, him and write it himself. It's easy to think back to those days when readers were everywhere. Publishing houses possessed greater cultural power than they do today, and how authors were discussed by multitudes of people while they were writing novels. It's also sadly easy to consider how Bear was subject to abject sexism, which led to rumours being spread, which, in turn, nearly led to a book not being published. I quote, A carter of Beckett specialists, the Becketeers, as I call them, all references to mouseketeers are intentional. White men in secure academic positions of power and authority formed my primary opposition. They were representative of a larger struggle in academia before, between the establishment and the perceived threat of women like me and my Danforth GFW colleagues, who were now competing for the same academic positions as the usual male candidates. 
For the Becketeers in particular, I was a brazen example, the mere girl who had invaded the sacrosanct turf of the Beckett world. One or two younger members who were brave enough to speak to me privately asked if I was completely ignorant of the pecking order, while in public they shunned me so they could keep on the good side of the powers that be. One of them surreptitiously motioned for me to join him as he sneaked behind a pillar in a hotel lobby in a modern language association conference. You are a pariah, and I can't be seen talking to you, he said with a swagger, feeling clearly brave for engaging in this little clandestine conversation. His childish glee left me unusually speechless and unable to think up a quick riposte. When I found my voice, I said I didn't know how I was being ostracised, since my two publications about Beckett had not been received positively within the academic world. Yes, this man said, in the academic world, but that's not the Beckett world. Later, Bea jumps into Simone de Beauvoir, and I love this little part from her initial meeting with de Beauvoir. I quote, I began to make stuttering conversation, starting with my thanks that she would give me time on her birthday. Her quizzical look as she replied let me know I was not making a very positive first impression. Why not? she said. What's a birthday anyway but another day? I didn't know what to say to that, but she didn't pause enough, long enough to let me answer as she asked, shall we get to work? I'd assumed that this was a brief getting acquainted session and had not brought anything with me, no notebook or tape recorder and I had not prepared any questions. My only preparation had been to practice how to tell her in my best French that I had to go home on the 12th to teach during spring semester and would not be able to begin serious interviews until at least the summer and then only if my schedule allowed me time enough to prepare myself for serious reading and research during the term. I stammered something about how I did not wish to impose uh, upon what I was sure to be a festive evening, so I had not brought any work materials with me. She snorted in derision. There was to be no celebration, she told me. Her friend Sylvie would be coming later with something for dinner, but until then we should probably get started. I fished in my bag for something to write on and could only find my date book, so I presented, pretended it was a notebook. I got a reprieve of sorts from asking questions because she launched right in to tell me how we were going to work. I will talk, and I will tell you what has been important in my life, all the things you need to know. You can write them down, but must also bring a tape recorder, and I will have one too. We can discuss what I tell you if you need me to explain it, and that will be the book you need to write. That will be the one you publish. I remember clearly how I lowered my head into my hands and said out loud, Oh dear. I had the sinking sensation that the book was dead and done before I even got started. What's the matter? she demanded. What is wrong? I was so flustered that I could not think in French and asked her if I could reply in English. She said of course because she read and understood the language far better than she spoke it. That is not how I worked with Samuel Beckett, I told her. Then I proceeded to explain how he had given me my freedom to do my research, conduct my interviews and to write the book that I thought needed to be written. I told her how we had agreed that he would not read it before it was published, and I even told her how he said he would neither help nor hinder me, which his family and friends interpreted as his agreement to cooperate fully. I told her that, having worked in such extraordinary circumstances, I didn't see how I could work any other way. I hoped that she would be generous and, and gracious enough to give me whatever help I asked for, but she will also allow me the independence to construct a full and objective account of her life and work. And this is quite the 
very special book. I mean, Simone de Beauvoir, if one has read her uh, stuffs before, especially via Sarah Bakewell, who wrote an uh, absolutely astounding book um, called At the, Exist- At the Existentialist Cafe, which is a fantastic review of uh, existentialist history. I recommend it fully. Um, so one can get the view that de Beauvoir really had a, a, a quite curt and very decisive way about her. I don't know if that's true, but still, uh, Bear makes this book come alive. It's so interesting. Uh, also, I adore this quote from Beckett to Bear after she'd mentioned the Becketeers, the men who were behaving sexist. I quote, I talked so much that my wine glass was left mostly untouched, but it was getting late, so I started to gather my things. Until then, he'd said nothing specific about the Becketeer's behaviour, but I think he was alluding to it when he volunteered one of the last things he ever said to me. You must never explain. You must never complain. Indeed, there have been many times since then when I've been ready to lash out in retaliation for a bad review or an unkind comment. But every time, I've remembered those words, and I've never explained and never complained. It's quite the book altogether, and um, I hope that Bear is more than content with it. She should be, I think. I was born just before a Beckett biography was published, and this book contains many pointers to what a writer, biographer or not, should consider. First and foremost, I see this book as a tale of the ups and downs of writing about human beings, and what those two human beings bring to the table while and how you write about all these things. This is a laudable and highly recommendable memorial of extraordinary times in the life of a very considerate and apparently skilled biographer. It is scheduled for publication in November. Next up, a fantastic book that is named Truth Has a Power of Its Own, Conversations About a People's History. This is by Howard Zinn and is also edited or commented on by Ray Suarez, who interviewed him. It's based on transcripts of conversations between Howard Zinn and Ray Suarez that took place in 2007. Uh, An opening statement of mine is that I am actually yet to read A People's History of the United States. Uh, Does that matter when reading this book? I can't tell and I know that's a good thing. I've read and heard many of Zinn's speeches and read some of his writings, and to say that he is influential is a severe understatement. Noam Chomsky is one of his main supporters and a close friend, and was a close friend, which says much. Zinn's fervor, humanitarianism, morals, honesty and energy jumps off the page. He's a man who has spoken at great length of how our society has changed, where it is and where it can be without tiring while always listening to people. The people who are at the center of Zinn's thoughts throughout this book and his life. We read Suarez's words, simple questions and postulates, which provide Zinn with ample ground to take off from. Witnessing his deeply rooted humanitarian critique against both the American regime through all times and his wondrous ability to think in an existentialist way i.e. he answers questions as if he were answering them on the behalf of humanity, as though the questions weren't trite and he weren't tired of them, is both beautiful and inspirational in the extreme. It's like witnessing a butterfly take flight. Here's a quote. Howard Zinn. The first chapter of a people's history in the United States was on Columbus. 
When it was published, I soon began getting letters about the book from readers all over the country, and I noticed that most of the letters were about the very first chapter about Columbus. First I thought, oh, they've only read the first chapter. But then I thought, no, this is the most shocking thing to them, because it breaks into the American myth about Columbus. It has something to do with the feeling that Columbus represents America, patriotism, Western civilization. It's untouchable. You mustn't touch the myth about the glories of Western civilization, about the wonderful things that Europeans brought to other parts of the world. You mustn't touch the traditional heroes and make things more complicated than they are. So Columbus is therefore a villain. Or is there a way of telling history that just fills in those missing parts of the portrait and puts someone in their times? Well, when I talk about Columbus, I don't ignore the fact that he was a brave man, that he was a great navigator, that he did something remarkable in crossing the ocean. That's one side. But then there's another side to him, the man who came here not to spread Christianity or care for people who were not here, but to use them. Use them in his search for gold, to bring profits to people back in Europe. A man who in that pursuit kidnapped Indians, mutilated them, killed them, enslaved them. Yes, you can humanize him. You can tell as much as you can about what he did was positive and what his good personal qualities were. But in the end, if a person has committed atrocities, you make a judgment about that. The result is not simply on the one hand, but on the other hand. It's not an equalization of the moral judgment. That is, if you have a moral approach to history. If you don't believe in simply laying out history like a telephone book, if you believe that moral judgments should determine your approach to history, then I think you have to make decisions. You can tell the story of Theodore Roosevelt as a complicated story. You acknowledge that there are remarkable things about him and you can say yes, he was a great lover of nature. He overcame enormous physical handicaps and in fact as a president he put in certain reforms. But on the other hand, there is Roosevelt the lover of war. There is Roosevelt the imperialist, there is Theodore Roosevelt the racist, there is the Roosevelt who commands a, a general for committing a massacre in the Philippines. You could say good things about Theodore Roosevelt, but in the end, if your concerns are human concerns, then you have to make a decision about what else you tell. In a certain sense, you are filling in the picture. You are more truthful. You're not leaving things out, but you're not putting thing but you're putting things in that have been left out things that are very, very important. The quote I just made is good because it says something highly significant about sin. His extremely sobering and terse way to provide background to a statement is almost singular. I think it's easy to see how he and Noam Chomsky affected and influenced each other. There are many singular aspects of Zinn's statements, not because he was a singular individual, but because he truly believed in what he was speaking of. He was a World War II veteran who flew bomber planes over Europe. He'd seen atrocities and partaken in them. He spoke directly with the people who both agreed and disagreed with him. It all boiled down to believe that all humans are equal. I quote, there is nothing that arouses attention so much as people who break a law. That is why civil disobedience is such a powerful weapon in the hands of social reformers. This entire book is a non-stop inspiration journey, I think. And there is no stop of Zinn's optimism. It's simple and it all boils down to the people. I quote, 
And if we bring these stories to the table, to be presented alongside the victorious generals on horseback, the wise founding fathers and so on, how do we benefit in the 21st century from that broader portrait? We benefit by recognizing that, if we're going to change society, we cannot depend on something created 200 years ago by the Founding Fathers, and we cannot depend on the people in power. We cannot depend on the President and Congress and the Supreme Court. Looking at this long thread of struggle and looking at the way things have changed, we learn that it's up to us as citizens. It makes us better citizens. It makes us active citizens, more than voters. It makes us people who day to day get together with other people. It really gives us a new idea of democracy. Democracy does not come from the top. Democracy comes from ordinary people seeing what they have in common and seeing what they are lacking. When ordinary people get together, they put their energy together. They protest together. They demand things together. They form a movement. And that is how change takes place. That is how we can get closer and closer to the ideals of the Declaration of Independence. The book is so fantastic. It's hard not to quote the entire book throughout. He, Zinn speaks of social change, of Mother Jones, the NAACP, the IWW, August Spies, uh, Emma Goldman, about what they did and what happened to them. And he weaves this into the everyday existence of people. He also speaks well about the importance of critiquing inwards as well as outwards. And we can't miss looking ourselves in the mirror as part of our human process. I quote, what, was Hitler evil? Of course. And Mussolini was evil. And the Japanese Empire was evil. Yet, that should not lead to acceptance of the huge number of atrocities we committed. And that is what we're doing. We were committing atrocities. We probably killed 600,000 ordinary Germans. They weren't Hitler. They were ordinary Germans. We killed an equal number. Probably 600,000 Japanese civilians. We killed 100,000 ordinary Japanese men, women and children in Tokyo in one firebombing. When you add all that up and you say, well, it had to be done because we had to beat Hitler, I don't think we can come to that simple a judgment. As it is clear to see, this book is beautiful and very wondrous, and I believe fully that it will awaken new minds to discover how it's in, which is more than doing what it should and I recommend this book to all human beings. Truth Has a Power of Its Own, Conversations About a People's History, will be published in September. That's it for me, people. Uh, thank you very much for listening, and I hope that you will have a very special and lovely summer. Uh, I will leave now with a song by Rye, remixed by Maurice Fulton to get the spirits up. Thanks again and goodbye.
Thank you.